and welcome to another episode of the Viatech Roundup Roundup, where Andy, Teb and myself, we explore all the news that came up in this week's Viatech Roundup, which is tech news from the week of July 26th. And we just explore a little bit deeper, really, and just kind of explain why it's relevant, how it impacts society, why it's of interest, um, not only to us at ECS, but also why other people might find it of interest too. Um, and we have some laughs along the way, so uh, worth a listen. We'd also love to say a big thank you to Ben Shinobi, who works super hard behind the scenes to get this out every week. So without him, me and Tebs wouldn't be able to get our beautiful voices out onto popular stations such as Spotify and Anchor. Um, so a big thank you to Ben as well. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. The first piece of news here was looking at a costly new AI law that's going to be introduced into Europe. And the law itself is designed to regulate artificial intelligence and could end up costing the EU economy 31 billion euros over the next five years, according to the Centre for Data Innovation. Um, I think the reason this has hit the news, not only because obviously the cost to people, but there's also a slight concern about how the regulation will limit AI development. Um, Although the commission has kind of said it disagrees with some of the findings of the report. So there is controversy around kind of, you know, if this is a good thing or a bad thing at the moment. What do you think? So I, I, I didn't quite know what to think, but I'm like, I'm immediately suspicious whenever I hear of a think tank saying this law is bad because it's going to cost a lot of money. <laughs> I was like, and who is funding this think tank? And what are they talking about? And when I read the report, it was like, these will be the most restrictive AI controls in the world. And I was like, is that a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> Quite. I, I don't, Give us some I perspective. Don't. Yeah. So I, I, I'm, I'm very dull. So I went and looked at the law um, because I like reading laws. Uh, they're a cracking read. Yeah. And um, it, was, it was about like protected characteristics and stuff. So like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're, I mean, usually they call them AI, but it's usually around machine learning. And it was like, you know, if it's going to start drawing conclusions that a fat made decisions based on protected characteristics like gender and stuff um, or sexuality, that would be like top tier bad stuff. Yeah. And I'm kind of like reading this thing and I'm like, I'm I'm struggling to find the thing I'm upset with. (laughs) And then I was like, I sort of took a step back from the article because that article was everywhere, right? It was yeah. like uh, it was like over on NBC News in America, and it, it was very much reported. I was like, this think tank thinks it's bad. And don't get me wrong, right? These guys in the think tank, I'm sure, are on the level. I think it's like some Tofton Street thing, you know, like Migration Watch or one of those weird lobbying <laughs> groups. And I was like, I was thinking to myself, is this just our normal inherent? Because I used to feel this as well, like bias as an engineer against. Oh, testers always get in the way. Yes, right, exactly. (laughs) And again, kind of when I was reading this, I was like, I don't understand why this is a a shock. And again, the fact that you've just kind of described what the laws even protected, and I kind of feel if anything's got an impact on society to the level that what you know we're seeing AI starting to have, surely there needs to be some sort of checks and balances in place. And the fact that these businesses even thought they could get away with not investing in those safety measures surprises me you know i kind of feel we spoke about it yesterday the fact that um cloud isn't being regulated i think that's really naive for businesses to sit back and think great we found something we're not having to worry too much about and we can just you know go along doing this willy-nilly and kind of how we want to be doing it without any external checks and balances and i think that's a really weird i don't know it's just a bit of shock that people are shocked by this and it kind of felt they're focusing on the cost more than anything else 
And that's it. It's like, you know, oh, I could cost you 31 billion just for you going on the curb. And you're like, I don't know, is there, is there a cost for making bad decisions with ML and AR? Absolutely. Uh, Let's talk about that. But, but yeah, the, um, funnily enough, when you mentioned regulation of the cloud from last week, um, this very morning, someone I follow on LinkedIn, who's an nice chap at AWS, I won't embarrass him by saying his name, <laughs> uh, actually said, he quoted an article that was talking about the Bank of England thing, and he said, time for off-cloud. And it was very... No! <laughs> I assume you were listening. Absolutely. Um, he definitely, he definitely wasn't, by he, the way. But, oh, come on. He definitely heard it from us first. That's the only logical uh, yeah. solution. <laughs> I follow him, I don't think he follows yeah. me. Um, but, the, um, but yeah, I mean, obvious AI stuff, right? Like back in the day, you know, Uber took a lot of hits for, you know, I mean, I think you've always got to be wary of any companies, like one of its core values is always be toe-stepping. Yeah. Uh, which I just think is possibly one of the stupidest values. But just accept, work. just, yeah. yeah. Accept yeah. that you've managed to save some pennies having not thought about it for the last decade yeah. right and the fact that you'll now have to spend some money into as you said you're, you're, you put yourself behind the curve you could have always had this at the heart of your design and kind of how you're going forward and by choosing not to yeah well, fine you've probably got a bigger uh, bill now but as a shop that believes in building testing in from the moment you're out in the code we would definitely argue that right yes. but yeah i mean if you're yeah, if, you, if you've got uncontrolled AI, you've got the kind of thing where, like, Uber was sending, like, um, oh, no, I'm going to, no, it was Uber. I was about to say, was it Tesla? But no, it was Uber just sending, like, AI-controlled cars through school districts. And it's like, whoa, 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 that's yeah. actually illegal. <laughs> but it's like, you know, that's fine, it's AI. It's like, well, no, it's not. No. So, you know, on the other hand, maybe this think tank is really on the level, but I just get very concerned when it's like the most restricted i don't know if that's a bad thing it's a qualitative statement absolutely and again the best thing for this week for me um kind of related but not really was the olympics and somebody said like they just want to put an average person in the 100 sprint race just so we can all see what good looks like you know and it kind of feels the same here isn't it it's like most restrictive it's like give give us kind of an example of what we're looking at here so we can actually understand um, what that restriction looks like and again what we are choosing to restrict and as you said if it's talking about looking after um, really important issues in society then I, I don't think that is restriction I think that's just you know looking after human rights which I think it should just be a fundamental part of business anyway so yeah I mean, the European Union it's a, it's a body that believes in things like rights and stuff how dare they how but, yeah it is I mean if you flip those things around it's like describing Lord of the Flies or like the Hunger Games as the least restrictive environment we can put our <laughs> yeah. It's not great. Right? Uh, so, yeah. so, yeah, so I, I, I didn't know. It felt, this to me felt like the kind of thing that you need to dig into. And yeah. I am not a nerd when it comes to Python, but I am a nerd when it comes to things like legislation. So I went and read it. I have a horrible feeling that a lot of people won't. No, but Ted, uh, you did the homework. And I, th- I think that is such an admiration for you. Because actually, as you said, a lot of people don't do it. And then they just kind of get swept up in those headlines. Guy to listen to about AI. Because I do have a beer in my bonnet. The guy to <laughs> I haven't noticed. There's a really good tenured professor at Harvard called uh, James Mickens. He's all over YouTube because he's like the funniest keynote history, keynote speaker in history. He's just amazing. Um, but he's got some very clear views on, uh, well, why don't we do testing with AI and ML? And that's something we've started looking at within ECS is like, 
how we can bring our test automation frameworks and just our test discipline into like training ML and AI to try and train some of that bias out of it. Yes. Uh, so we've got guys like Sammy Elson, Deepak, and them all with like our really good test practices to see what we can do around that. But it is mind boggling that you kind of go to the really good testers and the really good AI guys, like, um, how would we build the automated testing? And the more they think about it, the more they're like, it's not easy. Go listen to James Mickens. He's far cleverer than us, right? He's a <laughs> yeah. Harvard professor. I mean, I mean, we're pretty fair. close. We're pretty close, but um, we'll give him the well, edge. Well, I'm also <laughs> short and bald, but I'm not. But he's far cleverer. He's but, far cleverer. So next one then on the list here is organisations struggling to fill technology roles um, as a fresh IT skill crisis looms. So again, not new news. We have been kind of following this kind of story for, well, at least the last couple of years, probably even longer than that. And I think the... It's about last week with Capital One. Even exactly that. So I, I think what's interesting this though is there is, there is a difference, and I think it's um, good to talk about here, between a skill shortage and a skills gap. And I think at the moment, and the biggest problem is that we're facing both. Um, and over COVID, we obviously had um, a massive surge in digitalization of products. So not only were consumers using more digital um, services and platforms, but we also had companies looking to digitalize their own platforms and services um, and to make sure obviously security was improved. And they had in-house engineers and talent that could do that because, you know, whereas a time where you couldn't necessarily call in people to help. Um, and I think what was really interesting, they had the Learning and Work Institute basically pulled the number all the way back to like um, school. And so the number of young people taking IT subjects at GCSE levels has dropped 40% since 2015. And obviously the knock-on effect is what we're starting to see today um, because, you know, these then students aren't taking it up in universities. They're not going forward into work. So we are seeing the shortage in the sense that we're not seeing the talent come through and we're not seeing a different career uh, different careers transforming into transforming transferring into IT but there's also this skills gap and I think again the same research so um, the Learning and Work Institute revealed that 70% of young people expect employers to invest in teaching them digital skills on, on the job crazy yeah it seems a bit intense um, but only half of the employers surveyed in the study are able to provide that training and actually I think more more of the issue here is in some situations they don't have the skills or knowledge in-house to pass on um, and also they don't realistically, if they do have those skills in-house, they, they can't realistically let the engineers stop doing work to then spend time training up um, other people without kind of affecting day-to-day -day work. There seems to be adults coming through, or the new tank coming through, with an expectation on companies to train them in-house, which I just find madness because in, like universities obviously used to be hugely popular, but there does seem to be this trend shift in that you can learn on the job now or you can learn whilst being paid. I mean, it's a combination of things, right? It's like, I don't, you know, I don't think it's crazy to expect your employer to invest in you. You probably just think that's uh, common sense, even though a lot of companies don't. Yeah. At the same token, you do need to go out and learn some stuff, right? You know, right. like, in your spare time, you know, like, you, you can go on a demi and pick up quite good courses for a tenner. You know, in mm -hmm. more very rare sales, they're always on sale. You can get really good courses for like a tenner. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and by the same token, it's good to do your A-levels and your GCSEs. I get university might be a problem because yeah. despite what we're told, that is now a barrier. Yeah. But um, you can learn great stuff at school. You can learn great stuff in your own time. Come to the DevOps Playground. It's free. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, employers should be investing in. And, it, you know, I think, I think 
And the curatin particularly, it's just a name chat for my line manager that I'm sure that I'll hold my PDR. But he, um, you know, when he started digital, you know, he, he really had that idea that you hire from the DNA and you can teach the skills. Yep. Because actually the, the skill set changes so quickly and you look at the service our guys have and it's vast because... You know, they're always having to do a new cert for the next job that they're going to be doing. So yeah. they end up with this real depth of skill. And yeah, there's a risk if you talk to someone from our company that will always give you enablement as the answer. You know, like, do you want tea or coffee enablement? But <laughs> like, um, we genuinely believe that because in most cases, if you look at the IT workforce you've already got, particularly permanent IT workforce, they understand the systems at play, they understand the organisation, they're quite invested in the organisation, you know, they generally believe in the values, they like the people, you know, odds are the commute suits them, the salary suits them, so just train them. Yeah. We can help with that, and it's not just classroom-based training, it's classroom-based training, better paired programming, and then mentoring after to genuinely make them into the staff need. But there is this real thing, and we're, we're guilty of it as well, about going, right, I need a Python dev who knows how to ride a unicycle and also <laughs> plays a trombone, I'll go to market for that. And yeah. Go, no, 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 no. Make your staff a bit more suitable for what you're trying to achieve with them, because that's probably going to have all the other stuff that's off the CV yeah. that you really need, that you don't know you need, but at the same time too few people coming through, more companies digitising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, how do you do more with less addresses the, you know, the capacity element? Mm. Encouraging staff, making these subjects more accessible and relevant, right? Yep. Like, why aren't we teaching more people Python and React in school, right? And that that is a complaint that's gone back to the 90s, like, these languages aren't relevant for me. It's like, you know, we could address that better. In Germany, they do, so why can't we? Yep. And then at the same time, use the staff you've got a bit better. I also think there's another element to this, which is that as we've moved towards more agile, digital-based uh, delivery model like software, uh, you know, infrastructure as code, um, less reliance on like physical hardware, fewer programs at the time. So I used to manage, you know, like 300 people, five years, large infrastructure, change physical stuff on the floor. Teams have got much smaller. And there is a tendency to go, right, so I need this team to be able to cover everything. Yeah. And therefore, what I need is six ninjas. And you're like, oh, you could narrow the scope of what you're asking that team to do, but have more teams. Yeah. And therefore, you need normal people. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, the reality is that it's very tempting to say I can only achieve all this if I've got like six lead singers in the band. And yeah. like, that's not the world. You know, you Sorry. need drummers, bass players, that kind of thing, because that's that's the workforce. So if everyone's an A player, it's not. Doesn't work out. But also, I think you touched on earlier as well, like ECS are really good at dedicating time for our team to upskill. And I know, I think yeah. the term gets thrown around a bit called is a T shaped engineer. So it's where you have a load of skills which complement each other um, and again loads of tools under your belt but actually there's a particular thread of expertise that you then really focus yeah. on and mature so you become in part of a team it means you can work generally with other people really well because you know what they're talking about it complements the, the tools that you have but it also means that you have that really one subject which you have loads of um, in-depth knowledge over so it means that you become a lot more valuable to a team in the sense that you can bring the additional um, information 
Um, I think it's also what's interesting as well, you know, there's the skills shortage um, generally across the board. And as you said, we can address certain things like that, such as teaching coding languages a bit younger, getting children a bit more excited about how they can apply those languages. It's not just sitting at a computer all day for 12 hours um, writing code. You can, you know, take that skill and pretty much do anything with it. Um, but also the, the skills that at the moment we're losing the most, or we don't have enough talent in, are things like AI, cloud and robotics. Things which are still reasonably new to the market. Like, they're not new, new, but the fact that you're expecting, you know, a million people to come through with those skills when it's still areas which are developing. Again, it yeah. begs the question of, like, who's teaching the next generation? Because, you know, there's actually only a handful of people who are real experts in that at the moment. So... I think also touching back on, obviously we've got in-house academy. We spoke last year, um, last year, sorry, last week about different um, in-house kind of academies and colleges. How do we start introducing those into um, into businesses where it just becomes part and parcel of life? So you're training your engineers as they go through. You've got the ability to bring in new talent, ability to train up those who are looking to upskill. So if you've been working with hardware your whole life and suddenly you're like actually I want to transfer into cloud because that's going to be more relevant for my career for the next 10 years who's in place to help with that transition so I think it's again a lot to think about uh definitely but I think I think it starts being clear about the concepts that underlie it yes so like yeah. you, you talk about like the data guys the AI the ML guys right mm-hmm. fundamentally the core skills the mindset you need for that is maths yeah um, right predominantly statistical maths, hmm. which I've done <laughs> and is dull, right? I mean, no one wants to do it, right? But it's, it's incredibly important. And that's the difference fundamentally at a foundational level between someone who goes off and mines data for the answer they want yep. and a data scientist who knows how to get it. The, the best model for a data scientist would be really good epidemiologists and people hate them because they tell them the truth, yep. not what you want to learn. But fundamentally, that's what you need in data scientists. And when it comes to the guys who should be doing like infrastructure as code and all that stuff, actually, good old-fashioned hardware engineers are really good for that because they understand how the underlying... Like, there's always this talk about, like, oh, you should be treating your servers as cat and not pets. And you're like, no, no, no. Good old-fashioned hardware engineers definitely treat it as cattle, and cattle they really wanted to kill most of the time. Like, <laughs> if, you, if you give them, like, infrastructure as code, they're dead happy because it's really easy to swap out that yeah. stuff, right? So they've kind of got the mindsets for it, but then you build the skills on top. But, uh, I mean, ultimately, none of us in the industry cover ourselves in glory with this because we're very lucky in our industry. There's a lot of cash sloshing around. I know everyone feels like they've got limited budgets, but compared to like a lot of industries where we can often buy our way out of trouble. Yeah. And that's just not a great habit to be in. It doesn't encourage the best solutions. Um, and yeah, I agree. You know, uh, it, we've got to think about it holistically and we've got to think about that enablement agenda and we've got to think about how we're encouraging kids. We've got to do all of it properly. In this country, we're pretty spoiled. Historically, going back to the 80s, we've had one of the largest numbers of developers, hackers, like ethical hackers and all that. You know, you can trace it all the way back to the fact that we had cheap, affordable computers in most households thanks to things like the Spectrum. Yeah. There was a huge number of deaths in this country per head. And we're sort of going, oh, we're really struggling. <laughs> Go to countries like France. Yeah. And they're like, 
you know, skill shortage is one of their biggest constraints. And yeah, we're still struggling with this, right? So it's like, we need to do better. We can't just keep throwing money at the problem, yeah. uh, doing a brain drain from places like Europe, which is, you know, I think at one point we got to the point where we, like half our firm was non-UK because it was the only way we could address that skill shortage. Yeah. And we need to do something better and it needs to be systemic. I couldn't agree more. Perfect. Um, so something else that needs a little bit more attention, perhaps, but arguably we're not sure which direction yet. And this is obviously concerns over space tourism. So you've got the likes of Jeff Bezos, who are offering to pay billions of dollars to NASA to ensure his company Blue Origin gets to take part in upcoming moon missions. And then the complete opposite end of the spectrum, you've got pressure on NASA to stop funding space missions when actually, or, you know, a lot of pressure on millionaires to perhaps put their money to earth problems rather than space dreams and it feels that I don't know yeah, yeah of course I, there's I a no problem with millionaires let's have loads of millionaires yeah I have real problems with billionaires but um, you know <laughs> I, I just I like the way you introduced that because I was like at least going to want me to be balanced here and I just think like even it like even if you've got really strong feelings of, like against this and I, I do feel like from an environmental point of view it does feel like a waste right why are we not putting more money into innovation and um kind of initiatives taking place here but you can't take away from just how far space technology has gone and actually there's probably a lot of developments that we don't see every day and they're not given their full credit of actually the developments happening over in space stations how much of that translates and drips into everyday life yeah i mean Weather satellites, GPS, great yeah. stuff, right? Uh, I quite like knowing that a horror game is going to hit somewhere. You, you can give people warning to get It's helpful, yeah. Uh, absolutely. I think it's quite nice to have satellite images that tell you that people in Syria are playing about with, uh, you know, chemical weapons and that we should stop that. Um, you know, space is good, right? Um, I think, I was kind of sad there, going, hmm, if only there was some other well-defined mechanism for a billionaire to give $2 billion a year to uh, NASA. Oh, they used that, that, it was called tax. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, <laughs> that seems to do some great stuff when America had a higher tax rate, right? And, you know, the International Space Station's there, and that is nothing really to do with private equity and stuff. Yeah. You know, that's, that's state-funded by a lot of states. Um, you know, I think the environmental impact of space tourism is not great, right? But to be honest, would the environmental impact be better if the billionaires paying to do space tourism just treated their encouraged environmental impact in their companies a bit better? Yep. You know, I mean, probably, I mean, what made Louise's uh, open-ended question at the third roundup about, um, you know, what is it about space for billionaires? And I was kind of like, maybe it's the same as millionaires in a place in Tuscany. You know, just yeah. it's like the next level of that. Owning maybe, an island. Let's not own a yeah. planet instead. Yeah. Exactly. Or maybe it's like the likes of, you know, like there's a lot of techies. We, we tend to be an industry that quite likes having, a, you know, guys like having a bug out bag. Um, maybe that's equivalent. You know, if it yeah. all goes wrong, I can always go to Mars. Well, you could fix it here, right? Well, certainly... Yeah, and that's the thing, I think there's been so much attention. So again, rightly or wrongly, it's got space back in the headlines. Um, kind of feels that space is now being given a bit of a bad rep because a couple of yeah. men have decided to live out yeah. a dream. So It's becoming the preserve of, you know, I mean, it's, it's the midlife crisis and let's get a red Ferrari. But, <laughs> yeah. but if, you, um, if you, those guys could be really cool. They could go like, oh, I'm going to spend $5 billion dollars and fix, I don't know, the whole of uh, 
policy in India. Yeah. Great. I'm not going to go to space. Yeah. And everyone be like, I'm not going to begrudge you that, actually, because <laughs> yeah. it's effort, right? You know, I mean, maybe you can do both. And look, I mean, some of the technology they've driven is great, but, you know, if you look at, like, I, you know, I'm sat in the Anne Carcharisti room and, you know, you guys did, did great stuff around all the various women in tech. Some of those were NASA. Some of those were some great mathematicians. They get a lot of bang for your buck in government agencies, right? And it's yeah. like... You know, maybe they could spend that money a bit more efficiently yeah. um, if they weren't all competing to create the best rocket. You never know, right? <laughs> we will never know. But I do know it was NASA that put that on it, right? So it's like, well, yeah, you know, absolutely. Know. If you wanted that example of um, just like wealth inequality going beyond satire, it was the guy who bought a ticket on Jack Bezos's <laughs> rocket and then gave it to his son because he had a scheduling clash. I mean, what I, was the other thing? What was the <laughs> other thing? Why did that not hit the news? Surely that is the question on everyone's mind, right? It's like a really important haircut. <laughs> 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 what could be more important than a once in a lifetime space trip? Oh, um, absolutely amazing. Or maybe yeah, he woke up with a yeah. conscience and was like, oh no, I don't want to punch a giant hole in the ozone layer. You know, you don't, we'll never yeah, know. Yeah. We'll never know. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that would be the height of irony, wouldn't it? But <laughs> I don't want to go on the trip because of the environmental impact. I'll send my son. Well, yeah. He knows yeah. his future isn't that great. So um, let's give him all we can while we can. <laughs> yeah, it will be interesting. Uh, there's a part of me, because I'm still a bit of a nerd. I think everyone in IT is a bit of a geek. It's just, where are we on the geek spectrum? <laughs> and then and, and there's still part of me that looks at those rockets and goes, it's really cool. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and then I just hate myself because I'm like, stop it. You know, but, yeah. yeah. I, mean, but, um, I blame yeah, Hitchhiker's Guide entirely for everyone's fascination <laughs> with space. <laughs> Okay, uh, moving on to the next one. We're looking at booming profits for big tech. So here we're looking at Apple, Google, and Microsoft. Um, As consumers upgraded their devices, they looked out for cloud storage and they spent more and more time online during the pandemic. Obviously, these three giants benefited greatly. And I think uh, together, they had a combined profit of more than $50 billion in the second quarter and currently have a combined market capitalization of a whopping $6.4 trillion more than double the value when the coronavirus pandemic started about 16 months ago. Um, So I think what's super interesting about this is, yeah, absolutely, consumer behavior has driven, obviously, uh, more interest in the companies behind all the the big tech companies. Can the trend keep going? You know, are we going to see as people, the world starts opening back up again, people are going to get to start doing more in-person activities. Is that trend going to go up? Is there now people who are used to this technology in their lives? Will will, you know, continue to see a surge of that? Super interesting. If you look at where they derive their money, it's not just around the devices, right? It's like you buy the device and that's your gateway drug to the app store, to the storage, to the extra films, to their subscription, but I'm going to buy a film because I want that film and they're going to wait, maybe wait three months until I can see it throughout the subscription. You know what I mean? There's endless revenue streams that they can drive out of these things. I mean, it depends. It's kind of interesting what they do with that. You Mm. know, like... um, you know, there's some of those companies that have a tendency to go, well, we're going to park it all offshore and we can't really bring it onshore because we get taxed on it. It's terribly unfair, the taxation rates. And then you've got others that just go, we're going to spend it all mindlessly. Well, not mindlessly, sorry, that's unfair. We're going to spend it on crazy R&D stuff because <laughs> we don't know what the next big bet is going to be. Yeah. And I'm kind of less resentful of the latter because it's like... It's almost there, almost at the point where it's like research for its own sake, and that's yeah. where the next big thing comes from. I mean, 
Amazon famously just do not pay dividend because they're like, dividends are like crack. Uh, the minute we give shareholders, they're going to want them forever, but we're going to spend all this money. We're going to reduce great proof of concept. Maybe some of it will work. You know, but this is the company that brought us AWS. You know, they're a book retailer. Yeah. Who then do streaming? Who then brought you like the world's biggest cloud company? It's like, well, you know, who's the mortgage? You know, like, but they, they, they invest in a hundred things that never come off just to be that. But actually, that kind of drives innovation. They can get away with it having low margin because they're just so huge. Yeah. Um, and then there are other companies that just go, oh, we'll go keep all this money offshore and see what happens with it and have less time for that. But because, you know, ultimately it's just dead money. It's just sat there doing nothing. Um, is it sustainable? Probably because they're really clever. You know, <laughs> um, you know they'll, they'll, they've got some of the brightest minds figuring out how to like drive new revenue streams and stuff and I'm sure they'll come up with others. I think I think the bigger threats it's got to the point where the threat, the momentum for those companies is more existential. Is it's it's that paranoia that Amazon have um, about finding the next big thing, even though they're so far ahead of everyone else. They don't want that they live in fear of getting caught by someone. So that's why they invest so aggressively in the next big thing and it's interesting they've still got that kind of they've not become a lumbering monopoly that's just sitting on its laurels and then the other existential threat is you know a lot of these companies are based in the US and you know depending on what goes on with the filibuster in in the Senate there's a lot there's a big push for some antitrust stuff you know there's a lot of analogies it's quite a crude analogy but there's a lot of parallels with um, sorry she said a lot of parallels (laughs) but it is a crude analogy there's a with the sort of rail barons of the sort of like you know late 19th early 20th century the rockefellers all those kinds of guys when the us originally created its antitrust and its equivalent competition markets authority that we have you know like are these companies too big that we need to break them up right so this is i think what's super interesting because um what the same year uh well a few months ago now what google and microsoft ended their five-year ceasefire so at the moment, it's open game for either of them to go behind the scenes, do lobby, um, lobbying efforts, uh, public complaints against one another. To, it almost feels like, um, as you said, what could prevent innovation in the future is, is themselves. You know, they could be their own undoing. And it's just through obviously trying to sabotage the next biggest competition. So again, if you're those top three dogs, you're going to go after each other just to make sure you keep your market share is that fear but with these um regulators around the world who are threatening to impose limits on their power because obviously it's growing year on year like could we then also start to see other companies coming into the market simply you know to be seen to be fair or do we see these companies breaking down perhaps into smaller like r&d dedicated arms so that again they can kind of keep keep that innovation going but kind of you know in a I think it gets very difficult in terms of, um, I mean, historically, regulators have been cleverer than you'd expect sometimes. <laughs> um, like, cause I, I think people have a really low opinion of government, and, you know, government does deserve very low opinion on occasion, but sometimes they pick up on some really clever stuff. You know, I mean, like, you know, private railways, it's the natural monopoly, what should we do? Oh, I know, we'll just bring it on the state control because it's monopoly. No one saw that coming when it happened. It's yeah. like, oh, um, but you know, historically there have been some interesting solutions for like monopolistic behaviour. I mean, yeah, you could break stuff up. You could go like, well, Apple, you're going to have like a phone business, and yeah. there'll also be a separate firm for the apps and the platform. You could do things like cap 
in the revenues on those application platforms. That's the accusation labelled at Google for Android and and Apple for uh, the 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 iPhone uh, platform for apps. So I've literally forgotten what it's called. I've not had an iPhone in ten years. Um, God, I mean, when I got my iPhone, most of the guys in the office acted like an unplugged from the matrix. It was quite traumatic. But you know, but basically capping the amount of revenue that they can earn off the apps providers, because really owning the platform is the um, is where is where the cash is, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you could do somewhere with like um, Amazon around, like Kindle, the profits they take off the authors. Uh, you know, Amazon Music, the problems that they take off the artists, capping that and saying you either can only take X amount or once you've hit a certain amount, everything after that is just royalty free, right? Yeah. Um, and then similarly, you can say like the share of the profits that you've made or the share of the revenue, which is the bigger hit, um, once you pass a certain point, you have to invest that in startups or you have to... The environment. Uh, there we yeah, go. Yeah, exactly. Um, NASA. And, you know, these kinds of and regulators have come up with these kinds of solutions in the past and you know there, there are analogies for like pharmaceutical companies that have like unnatural monopolies on things where they've got rights and you effectively pay a being too big tax yeah and it does require a mindset shift though because it goes you know people are like, mm, it's not really fair and you're like well i mean that's a debatable point but you know Ironically, a lot of the guys in fairly senior positions in those companies are perfectly happy to say life isn't fair. And yeah. If you've got something that disadvantages literally hundreds of millions of people versus a few others, yeah. well, you know, you don't have to be a big school pick, pick like utilitarianism and Jeremy Bentham to go, this one's easy on the scales, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it would be interesting, but I think, I think ultimately yes it will continue the only change will be because everyone goes oh it's too insurmountable now if you do a porter's like five forces analysis how would you get into that market and that's the point you, you never know and it, it's a hackneyed thing now but my space that looked pretty dominant yeah you know most people don't even remember it now <laughs> um you know you get overtaken by a competitor that you never saw coming or you end up in an antitrust situation. I think really the only three bodies that could realistically do good antitrust stuff at the moment at a scale that would impact these companies would be like the US, China and the EU. They're the only three that are big enough to do it yeah. um, and cohesive enough. But and I I don't know, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't. Otherwise I think yeah it will continue. I think they've got the momentum and I think they'll come up with different revenue streams even if these ones run out. Yeah, and certainly they always do. Don't know where, don't know how, but they will. Yeah, yeah I'd just be interested to see, like, again, um, if you've got your competitors now, again, no longer under a ceasefire um, to nip mm. your ankles, is that going to actually take some of the focus away from customers? You know, are they going to have to spend more time fighting court cases and, yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff that actually innovation will be stifled a little bit because. How, how do you choose to compete? Do you do it by gouging the other guy or offering a better service to your customer? Absolutely. It's genuinely interesting to see which way. Oh, do you do both? Yep. So be interesting. Maybe they've got a bad way. <laughs> Let, let's hope. <laughs> let's hope customers feature at some point in either solution. Um, Fingers crossed. <laughs> and last one, and again, I think it's been everyone's TV, hopefully at least once this week, is the Tokyo Olympics. And we've been taking a look at the amazing tech in action. 
Um, and it is actually phenomenal to see just how far technology has come. And it's not just the, the hardware we see in terms of like cameras and um, heart monitors and all that stuff. It's um, the clothing. It's, it's all the innovation that goes into the shoes that people wear and the platforms they uh, springboard from. And um, again, one of my favorites is the multi-camera replay systems. You know, I'm a massive fan of hockey. I play it in my spare time. And being able to watch a game a decision's made by an umpire and all of a sudden you can refer it and you've got this TV replay of exactly what happened, you know, segment by segment from completely different angles. And the fact that that technology exists, the fact that you can now view sport, multiple sports that never had airtime, you know, live on mainstream TVs now, social media, you're getting behind the scene access to athletes and kind of what it's like to be at Tokyo. It's just, it really is phenomenal of how far technology has brought, like, every sport along, not just yeah, yeah, yeah. your big ones. I mean, you're the expert here, right? I mean, <laughs> in, terms, in terms of sport, I run nowadays, that's all I do. So, basically, I've got the same sporting capabilities as a three-year-old. <laughs> but, um, well, you're genuinely athletic, right? And, you, you know, I mean, uh, and it's always... Um, it was genuinely hilarious to see that uh, sporty side of you on Tuesday night when we were playing because it was like, oh, she's very serious now. <laughs> <laughs> we done, I'm not we competitive, you are. <laughs> well, we could have done with the robot umpire then, right? Oh, we could have done with any, any umpire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you've got a far greater appreciation for this stuff. The, 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 the things that wowed me in the Olympics, so I love the use case of like um, the robots going out to pick up javelins and stuff because actually that stuff is genuinely dangerous you know in fact there's a story just today about poor cuban youth athlete who died due to the training ground accident with the hammer okay. um, but you know um javelin uh, officials have been hurt in the past and yeah. i think one died famously a few years back because they go out to pick those things up so the idea of having a robot go do that you're like that's brilliant yeah but i'm just again i'm just a bit of geek uh, it's not <laughs> new technology it's about eight years old now it's been in previous olympics but yep. i just love the drone shows yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I can't, I cannot comprehend it. It's like, watching, it's like I mean, I, well, I, I genuinely, of course, can comprehend it. Like, yeah. at an abstract level, I understand the software involved, I understand how that's working to do these, like, essentially coordinating a swarm of bees in drove, drone form, <laughs> doing these amazing shows. But there is still this childlike wonder at me just going, that is amazing. Yep. Uh, I mean, just crazy. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I think... Uh, you know, I never thought of the sort of equipment advances, like you say, in the, in the sports clothing and stuff until like Louise and you were talking about it. And I was like, of course. Of course. But uh, also for, for judges, I, I think for a lot of us, we don't, we don't truly understand sports. And actually sometimes the only time we see certain sports is, is every four years when they're on the TV for the Olympics. And I, I find... intensely care 15 minutes. Obviously, yeah. yeah <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Dancing horses, you know, you shove those I've all year round. I've been so invested in <laughs> Right. <laughs> um, Your point about um, you know uh, these four shows once every four years. I I genuinely think um, one of the reasons people get so passionate about this. I the thing I love about it is I just love watching people who are good at doing something. Yeah, that's like. Well, that's like you or Roy, like, managing to take, like, a series of um, big egos like me and my colleagues through, like, um, a marketing uh, brainstorming session <laughs> and there's not being idiots because you two are genuinely gifted at that. 
or it's like watching someone like I don't know Tom Chapman coming up with a testing framework, or Jessica yep. Ennis doing like. <laughs> Yeah. You know, the, it's like it's just watching someone who's just amazing at what oh, they, they do, do. Yeah. and you can literally just sat back, sit back and wonder and go, brilliant. And that's why the Olympics works. It's like the sports you don't necessarily care about. What do we, I mean, we really care about the Premier League if you're a football fan or a Leeds fan in my case. But you know, it's quite a depressing journey being a Leeds fan. <laughs> but um, although actually, I shouldn't say last season we did very well. But the point is though, like. You, you're a football fan, right? You think yep. you're rubbish, but you support the team. Yeah. You get genuinely excited about watching, like, the Dutch runner in the 800 metres. Because <laughs> yeah. they're just amazing. And you can see, like, the physical excellence. And you can appreciate the years of training that must have taken. And the Olympics really is that standard. And, and the fact that they all converge and they get closer and closer just means it's even more... You know, nerve-wracking. You're not even supporting anyone in the final, but you're just, like, so on the edge to go, who's going to win this? <laughs> and you only get that with that level of human excellence. I just think people like watching people who are brilliant at what they do, and the Olympics is the embodiment of that. But I think one of the most interesting things for me is, I, as I listened to my fiancé, he's just got into road biking, and... Um, you know, he started. He's taken it very. Ve- opportunity to break records. Oh, absolutely, and break records, his own records. Um, he tried time trials himself on numerous occasions. And what I find really interesting is that he's now got to the point where he's buying wheels. Um, so he's two grams lighter. For for my fiance, it's a joke. He, you know, he would say that a lighter bike would mean he could go faster, and who knows, could compete in the next Olympics. But actually, it costs a lot of money, and. Yeah. The, the more you invest in obviously technology, the lighter the bike, uh, the more carbon you're using. Um, again, there was that real controversy around, uh, was it Oscar Pistorius around his carbon fiber blades and the fact that him wearing those and the fact, again, it wasn't really being regulated about what, how much innovation could go into those. Was that then offering him an advantage which others can access? Um, is there creating a barrier to, you know, what athletes can afford not only to use on the day, but also in their training, you know, a, a training um, equipment kind of getting more and more out of reach, the more innovation and money that's yeah. kind of invested in them. So it does kind of, it is incredible yeah. and it is great to see those who make it to the stage, but actually is it stopping others coming through? Yeah, yeah definitely. I mean, you know, there's a reason sporting superpowers exist <laughs> because they generally throw a lot of money at it. Right? Yeah. And it's like, you can have that conversation about um, Oscar's legs, although <laughs> obviously... That's not the conversation we're all having about mm. now. But you can you can have that conversation about the technology involved there, but you know where do you draw the line? Absolutely. You know, if you if you think about the training suites that Team GB have available, so, you know, I mean, since we got very ruthless about how we're going to spend that money, you know, are you going to get a medal? No, well, you don't get any money. Though. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, sponsorship. You know, but when we got very ruthless about that and started really investing in sports where it was a possibility, the training capabilities they've got. How are some countries? going to compete with that. You know, Absolutely. we might be a small country, but I know we moan about it, but we're phenomenally wealthy per capita, right? And when we're throwing cash at these things, we can actually do quite a lot if we want. And some countries just cannot compete with that. So it's yeah. like, are they the better athletes or have they just got the better opportunities? And, you know, so, and I mean, ironically, of course, the International Olympic Committee is not somewhere where there's ever an unlevel playing field or fraud or corruption. So uh, they're, they're probably pretty well placed to arbitrate it all. But, yeah. Know, you know, I said about the original point, though, we need an average Joe to 
<laughs> just if he <laughs> dropped in on the 100 metres just to let us know uh, just how far ahead. I, I do find that frustrating. I imagine that's exactly what I look like when I run. <laughs> I look at those guys and I just, I don't need comparison. Like, <laughs> no. You are just awe-inspiring when you're, when they're doing their thing. Yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't need the average show. You're right there, there were a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of TikTok memes at the moment about like, bloke lying on sofa, eating <laughs> going, can't believe Simone Biles walks off. I'd never let my team get off, honestly. Yeah, maybe this is what's missing from the coding world. Maybe if we filmed coders coding, you know, take a whole week of the year, every four years, and just, you know, do championships and uh, hackathons and stuff, maybe we'll inspire the next generation to come forward and compete in the next year. Yeah, it's famously sad, isn't it? It's like, whenever, (laughs) like, Hollywood's always like, we would shout hacking, but it's dull. Wow. <laughs> is it dull? Let me take out, like, let me take out the world with this button. Well, most, yeah, I mean, most hackers are really my sort of age, and and the kinds of guys who think biscuits are for males, <laughs> and they just sit there doing like brute force attacks. Like, I'm just going to put in the same, I'm going to put in variations on a word eighty three thousand times. And I mean, actually, this kind of draws us nicely to an end because uh, one thing to note, obviously, if you want to watch a coder do some coding and, and learn as they go, um, we hosted the Devil's Playground on Thursday night, so that was the 29th of July, and um, it was a deep dive into Terraform, and that's exactly what you can do, you can jump over to our YouTube channel, the ECS YouTube channel, and check out James, who um, is coding for an hour and a half, um, on our YouTube channel for you guys all to enjoy, and you can... Uh... Landmark as well, because first one done from the office. Oh, yeah, I heard. Yeah, yeah. There, there we go, and I think actually the plan is to open them back up into the office at some point, in the autumn, so do keep your eyes and ears peeled for that when we release more details. Yes, can check our new office. Oh, it's so good. It's such a great office. Such mm. a great office. I think that's it. I think that's all the time we have for. Um, thanks so much for tuning in. I've been Ellie. I've been Andy. And uh, yeah, we'll catch up with you next week. Take care. Cheerio.